0: From 11FS, I'm David Abria, and this is Fintech Insider News. On today's show, we discuss Monzo going live with its current account as Starling goes live with Apple Pay, not that it's competitive at all. I spoke to David Geel from the FCA about their latest cohort of their regulatory sandbox, and today the tech startup raises $1.3 billion from ICOs. Is this madness or a genuine revolution in funding? All of this and more on this week's episode of Fintech. Insider News. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Fintech Insider News. We are coming to you live from the lovely, lovely 11FS office in WeWork, London. My name is David Breer, and today on the show I am joined by my 11FS colleagues, the one and only Jason Bates. Say hey, Jason. Hey. And one of my favorite human beings, Simon Taylor. Say hey. Hello. If that isn't enough to quench your insatiable desires of fintech goodness, then we have two fantastic guests for you today. First up, we have Liz Lumley. Say hey, Liz.
1: Hey, how you doing?
0: Very well. And also, we have the FT's Kadim Shuba. Say hey. Hey. So, to get us cracked on, let's get on with the news. So, first up, we have an interesting story in Finextra. So, Jason, this is Monzo is taking it slowly, slowly with their current account. What do we know?
2: Well, very exciting. Back in April, Monzo got their full UK banking licence and uh, essentially put out a, a blog post detailing how it was going to start to issue those current accounts to the armies of fans they already have so the aim is to offer a current account to all of their existing customers by the end of the year they're rolling out over the next i think three months something like 10 or twenty thousand accounts and it's it's the classic monzo story it's starting to scale it up dealing with the problems that occur you know building it a bit building it out and then you know essentially giving it to the rest of the country the investors get uh, first dibs so people who've been involved with the cloud the crowdfunding campaign get to move to the front of the queue and it's a super exciting time you know suddenly it's faster payments suddenly it's the account number and sort code and you, we're starting to get to the point where we're seeing real digital banks take hold
0: I have been incredibly unlucky with everything that goes with Monzo. So I'm not an investor, not for the want of trying, but for the lack of uh, luck. Um, so I imagine I'll have to um, wait and see what happens and get one of these. But would anybody be up for transferring to a Monzo account? Well, now? I tried,
1: I tried to, I had a golden ticket. I tried to send my husband up to it, but he didn't get the email. Okay. So I've been, been unlucky as well. But I notice if you read the story, they're going back to old school banking, customer service between nine and six only so I think it's going a bit
3: retro Re- retro yeah. banking mm-hmm. <laughs> I off with. temporary whilst uh, I know it's
1: temporary but uh, I thought
3: it was cute <laughs> yeah, <that's quite> <laughs> <sweet>. <laughs> I, I, I do like this idea of do something with 10 customers 100 customers um, warn them that it's super early things might break you're testing this things aren't going to be quite perfect I, I think that makes sense like build things out in concentric circles test it with people who know that they're, they're in an element of a very early product that know they're taking risk and learn from it and then fix all all the things they find really thank them and grow a relationship with those people they build advocacy with the brand and we we see this a lot i think in the in the startup space and i think it's something that incumbents can learn from Mm. i I like the fact that jason referred to it as sort of a classic monzo
0: approach because like genuinely we have heard that from banks now it's like do-a-monzo is becoming a thing, which is... um, I feel like it needs a dance. Uh, Can you do that dance? Like, it's the one
2: episode where we're not doing it live on Periscope, but, like, can
0: you do that dance for us now, You can dance. The thing I
2: I find most interesting, though, is the, the almost painfully transparent way that they're communicating about these things. If you look at the way that they've spoken about what they're launching and what... Won't be involved. You know the features that actually won't be here at the uh, right at the start, and equally the financial accounts that were put out, really sort of going into depth and explaining the the basics of what was going on. Which interestingly, some uh, news outlets sort of take as a target bullseye, and suddenly it's a oh they're going super slow and they're not going to be launching figures, or oh look at those financials, they're losing lots of money. But there's something for me that r- super powerful about this hasn't been PR'd or messaged. It, oh, it, cor- yes. Well, it has. Yeah, it, Do you yeah.
1: think it's so? It's yeah. a strategy. That's a question mean, yeah, I mean, transparency
2: is a strategy, <laughs> though. Of course, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. I mean,
4: uh, was it like one of the the number one rules in sort of like crisis? I mean, this is not crisis PR, but in yeah. crisis PR, it you just tell the truth and get get everything out there at once. But anyway, this is so not they that, can't have
1: a journalist but, say we discovered because they they're all they put exactly, it all out yeah. there.
4: But, um, but I do think, I mean, I, I do also think that, you know, it's quite refreshing that they are totally upfront about we're doing this. And, you know, they have their like product roadmap online, um, a, a Trello board or something like that. But uh, in their accounts, they said that every user loses them like 50 quid a year, um, which is a lot to lose on a, a user. Obviously, it's not like marketing. They've got really great sort of… Uh, but that isn't, that's
1: just current accounts. Banks lose money on… Current accounts.
4: Yeah, all the well, time. Yeah, but they're oh, t- yeah. losing <laughs> <than that, yeah.
1: laughs> a lot more than that.
4: And do banks lose a lot more than that? I mean, they're, they're, yeah. they're yes. saying, they said in their accounts that like we will lose less money when we can move over to a bank style current account, mm-hmm. right? Well, well. So when they when they actually insource a lot of the
0: the capability around the provisions of the cards, um, but yeah, banks banks can lose a lot more than that. But on, also, on looking,
2: banks can lose a lot of money because they've got thousands of staff, hundreds of branches, billions spending in IT. The CMA report on current accounts that was produced not so long ago showed that you can make one hundred and sixty pounds a year per customer on average from a currency yeah but account. the
1: whole the whole reason why banks originally did free checking was because they could take that loss because sure. those customers bought higher priced items mortgages and other and that's that margin has become a lot smaller I mean I, I don't mean I love the challenge of banks but I've always been curious about why they went for current accounts as it just seems like such a difficult road to take. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, 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 they didn't. Nece- uh, not all fintech did to start with, did it? You know, no, we started in No, I'm just in talking payments.
1: about like the you know but, and Starland, But it,
0: it's kind of the evolution of that, isn't it? Mm. And I, and for me, I, I kind of feel like actually the the center point of my financial life is my current account. You know, it's where I get paid. It's where everything that I pay goes from. When
1: you so, talk about owning the customer,
0: that's it. That's ground zero. Yeah, I, I, yeah. Like I, that whole owning the customer thing is always a delicate sort of uh, naming convention, isn't it, in yeah. people's minds? <laughs> you know, evil bank empire owning a customer means a very different thing. For from sort of primary access of data. But um, but no, I, I sort of see it as like a pivot point for every sort of financial thing that I do really, you know. If you can know me and know my data, then you can serve me better. Um, and I think that's where actually when you look at lots of like lenders or, you know, we've, we've started to see all the people that have done niche plays in fintech start to traverse into current accounts, probably because of that access to data, but maybe moving us on. So from, from one challenger bank to another, um, Starling Bank have announced that they've now, uh, gone live with Apple Pay. So this was a, a video that was put up on YouTube explaining the, the process on this one, which was, um, fascinating. If not for the who's that bum in the in the background of the video, which yes. we found quite entertaining,
1: <laughs> someone—I don't—I I don't, I don't want—and I, again, I feel like I shouldn't criticize them, but whoever did that video.
0: Whoa. <laughs> they, they, they covered the gentleman uh, I believe it's a gentleman because it looks like a, a chap wearing shorts but if it is a lady and we've just offended you I'm really sorry um, but it, an interesting, you know, Starling are killing it right, you know, with all of the sort of perceived slowness with Monzo getting to to market with the current account then it seems like every other week Starling are releasing another feature and
4: functionality well, but my question about Starling and it may be that I need to do more research on the company is like, who's using Starling, um, and I, you know, I suspect the answer is like not really anyone. And so Monzo have had this approach where we'll just get people using the product, and uh, and you know, for them it's going to get only more and more difficult over time as they get into the the tough stuff around building a bank. Whereas Starling, you know, they have a product announcement every uh, week, as you said, but I am yet to meet a pr- anyone who uses Starling.
1: They, they tend to retweet them.
0: <laughs> so, so I haven't, you know, in a sample size of myself buying stuff at places, like I haven't seen a Starling card in the wild yet. And I was the fourth person at a bar to use a Monzo card in a row. The other day, and uh, like these are normal human beings. This wasn't some sort of weird fintech event, that I was attending. Not like our people. Yeah, <laughs> not, not like us. Not us people. But real people. Um, so yeah, no, I, I I have to say I haven't seen Starling Cards out in the wild, uh, but um, yeah, interesting.
2: But it's interesting. It's like a, a sailing race where you've got sort of the yachts going off in orthogonal directions. You know, on one hand, you've got sort of driving that massive customer base, really sort of getting up there, learning, getting the data building and then on the other hand you've got you know starling are doing you know launching an island they've got a marketplace they're launching a current account they're doing apple pay and so you've got all of these features and the question is will that then build that customer base faster will they catch up or overtake or will the fact that you've got all of these people already on your platform and then can add features you know will that keep them i i find it a fascinating fascinating race
0: I think definitely on the, like the customer one as well as from a developer perspective. Cause actually, I think with all of the stuff that Starling is doing now and all of the APIs that they've released and, you know, they are way ahead of many of the sort of players in this space doing it at the moment. So if developers start moving more towards them and and less towards sort of the you know people like monzo then actually i think that will be a real sign that they're making hay because then the features are going to be almost like con- you know a continuous stream of new stuff coming to market
2: but i guess i guess in the end it's not really about monzo versus starling because they're just tiny fractions of what the big you know the 65 million people out there who bank with you know, the big banks. So it, I, I again find it interesting with draw, the eye is drawn to this, you know, this race, but actually they're, you know, there's, there's just so much more territory to win beyond one versus the other. It's not zero sum for where they are.
4: I was just going to say it, uh, you know, and you, you've just, you made, that's a very good point. You know, there, there's a lot of ground for each of them to pick up. You know, in history, you have lots of these battles where one uh, player has a really technically advanced product. And the other one just has like a product that everyone loves, but it's not perhaps as sort of intricate or well built. And usually the one that everyone just loves for some reason uh, (laughs) wins out. Um, And so I wonder if the same thing happens here.
1: Who has the bigger marketing budget?
4: (laughs) (laughs) If, sadly,
0: that is usually the differentiator in terms of, I, I actually, um, speaking of, um, Monzo card usage, I actually, so this is the point when you know it's going like super mainstream is, um, I was at, this is a very British story, but I was at Wimbledon last week, uh, horrendous tennis, but like really good day, Pims, <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, but paid for the bus, uh, on my Monzo card and the guy, who was taking the tickets also was a Monzo customer, so this is this is he was in no way financial services guy fintech guy at all, but proceeded to tell me for ten minutes while me and my mum were waiting for the bus to leave, how much he loved it, and how much like the features were great, and the app was wonderful, and I was like. Okay, <laughs> like you know, I wouldn't have got that if I'd used my Lloyd's cards, you know. So uh, but you it, probably would
1: have got an earful. Oh yeah, very, very likely.
0: But it, but it's an interesting dynamic, and um you know, actually, the the move to it becoming like this weird sort of club thing, you know, and it, and the fact that it was like a secret club, like people are, are, are like us, but now like normal people are doing it, and um, and I'm like. Being a bit hipster about fintech, I'm not sure if I'm cool with
1: people.
3: Like, especially people on a bus.
1: I know. Like, they're,
3: they're the worst. Uh, but for humans on a bus to, like, bankers, there's classic banker response, I think, to a lot of this space was, oh, it's just a prepaid card with an app. Like, I could do that. And and what you say there from somebody on a bus, not somebody inside the fintech bubble is, no, it's not. There is something that people are seeing here. And I think that's, a, that's an interesting point to try and uh, emphasize is, brand advocacy people enjoying an experience can be a differentiator as much as people have paid lip service to it it's nice to see even though it's an anecdote people actually reporting that in the wild
1: also and i think you'll bring this up in a later story you know this is the startup versus banks they launching a little prepaid card they don't understand what that what that point is in the journey of the startup yes. a bank doesn't they think understand it's the end, not the not yes beginning. exactly
0: well, in the uh, sort of uh, David and Goliath, I'm always uh, definitely on David's side in that uh, those scenarios. <laughs> it's almost like it's
3: your name. Can't tell why.
0: <laughs> Moving on, so we have another story from Finextra, and this is PayPal partners with Samsung Pay, which is a lot of peas in a sentence. I'm uh, not it's a lot lie. of the
3: word "pay," isn't it? PayPal, pay, PayPal, pay, 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 Yeah. So coming soon, consumers in the US will be able to use PayPal within Samsung Pay. So Samsung Pay, of course, is the I go to uh, a retail store, I go to uh, whatever store. I I want to do and i want to buy my stuff i go to the checkout and when i get to the till i to get out my samsung galaxy s8 and i use the samsung pay app which has my card stored inside it and i can i can pay right there well now i'll be able to use paypal to load that card and i'll be able to use paypal within samsung pay and there's something like 200 million paypal customers in the world and, and about 50 percent of those are in the u.s the very large penetration in the u.s makes a lot of sense PayPal have been around for some years, steadily growing. They floated on the stock market a couple of years ago. I think their initial share price was around $35. They're about $52, $53 now. Interesting to me is that the growth in the past couple of years has been more around their acquisitions. They'd been this person-to-person payments thing for the internet, this checkout for the internet for a while, and sort of plateaued. And then it's become more of a Venmo, Braintree story. But there's there's something hidden in here. So as we see, you know, PayPal who've processed 102 billion in mobile payment volume, etc., etc. One of the things they say is that uh, they're going to actually be integrating with Braintree Direct, so online merchants. Will be able to accept Samsung Pay as a payment method in app and online. So that is the really interesting nugget in here, which, to his credit, Jason pointed out before the show and I hadn't spotted. Uh, So I find this one really interesting because, one, it's a partnership of two people trying to push into the fintech space. And two, it's more of PayPal moving away from they're just the, the PayPal business that we know and TV adverts about how awesome it is to use their wallet and more of them trying to either acquire or partner their way into growth. It's almost like their natural growth has ended. I don't know if you guys feel the same or different.
0: Uh, like, as somebody who's so far inside of the Apple aluminium bubble, then Samsung K is just something that, like, happens on the periphery the of my life. But the only thing I like about this <laughs> yeah. But, um, but the, like, the, the PayPal bit really interests me, because sort of, to your point around the sort of plateau of PayPal, PayPal feel, like, so corporate now to me. Mm. Like, they don't feel they're, like... They're
1: one of the bad guys now. Yeah, yeah it's strange, yeah. but,
2: but I'm,
1: I'm not sure when that sort of
2: happened. When Elon left. Is that what it was? No. <laughs> Oh, Peter Thiel. You know, it's, it's hard to say who's the good guy in the, the, the bad thing, guy. The thing that interests me about this is, on one hand, you've got Braintree, or you've got Stripe. You've got the acquirers. Like, how are you going? To, how are people going to accept money? And we spoke to the CEO of PayU at uh, Money 2020 that was saying they had something like 260 different schemes or ways of moving money. You know, so that on one hand, it's how a business is taking money. On the other hand, it's there's something in the middle there's the device it's apple pay it's samsung pay it's your card it's something and then beyond that there's the wallet like where's my store uh you know suddenly apple launch a you know apple card or amazon or paypal and that somehow the The connection of those things, you know, Samsung Pay can suddenly be used on Braintree Direct, so there's a link there. And then what loads on Samsung Pay? Is it their wallet? Is it someone else's wallet? Suddenly there's PayPal there. And, And suddenly you're getting these alliances where people are looking to win in their particular area, but also you know, some people are actually stretching across those things. And whether that's banking, where we're seeing, you know, the stack of the buds and the curves and the people who are going to sit above banks and then banks and then banking infrastructure or payments where there's the acquirer, the the method, the physical thing and the wallets. It fascinates me how these things are, are suddenly becoming verticals or horizontals and these alliances are forming. Suddenly it's like my gang against your gang or I'm going to work with these three guys and you're going to work with those two guys. It's very it's West Side Story really, reference. Really it is. Like yeah, I'm just good. not yeah. kicking my that's, fingers that's at good. this
0: point. So it's not David versus Goliath. It's Goliath versus
2: like 15 Davids might be able to take it down. Nobody wants got a 15, 15 Davids, the, Davids, I'm just saying. The expertise in that partnership yeah. And how you how you bring those cooperatives, those collaborative groups together, seems then to be the you know the way to win, really. But I, but I guess this is again, it's like big company versus small company stuff, right? No, none of the big
0: companies that are out there right now started with all the things that they they do. They did one thing well and either acquired other people who were doing something else reasonably well or not so well, and
3: you know became that sort of full stack of what universal banking actually is, isn't it? Android was an acquisition by Google. I mean, there's there's a strong track record of, of acquiring your way in as a big tech company and, and growing you can do it the the tech companies are some of the biggest acquirers out there um, I, and this makes sense as a partnership uh because as jason says it's two people closer to the edge Apple's strategy now starts to look like it's them or the highway with these guys taking a bit of a different approach. Uh, interesting to see how this one kind of evolves because which approach is right, I guess. Apple's
1: starting to look like it's their way or the highway. That's always been there. <laughs>
2: oh, yeah. In this particular
1: instance, right. but yeah, right. I take your
2: point. But they're, they're, con- they're controlling that, that center. You know, it's like if you've got Apple and someone's got the iPhone and they've got a great market share, then who are you get, going to get to take Apple Pay and who are you going to get to to connect their wallet? Yes. So suddenly it's let's strong arm the banks into using uh, Apple Pay and the device, and let's strong arm the the acquirers and where I can spend Apple Pay. And and from this base of of you know the Apple fanboy iPhone users, we're going to try and connect both sets together. You know, I think that there's there's something there. Hmm. Interesting.
0: Moving on, we have a story on Bloomberg. So this is BNY Mellon appoints tech focused Charles Scharf
3: as their next CEO. Indeed. Uh, So BNY Mellon uh, are a custodian bank. Um, Now, custodian banks are the banks that hold money when one bank and an asset manager are trading. So this is your very capital markets institutional side. So a pension fund may have uh, an account with an asset manager, but really all your pension funds tend to sit at a custodian bank that's where all of the money sits and basically custodians are glorified no- uh, vaults that just keep track of who owns who what right i mean i
1: love how you had to explain what other types of banks are <laughs> <laughs>
3: but, 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 but i think it's worth it for the people who aren't in financial markets to to just kind of get a view as to, to what a custodian is bank he gonna does. be
1: based in pittsburgh
3: I don't know, but what's interesting to me about uh, this kind of headline is they're talking about BNY Mellon appoints tech-focused Charles Scharf as its CEO. So I went on Wikipedia and looked for what tech-focused Charles Scharf had, and I found a lot of CFO roles, I found a lot of CEO roles, I found a lot of history with different banks, and he was very close to Jamie Dimon at one point, and all kinds of things. I couldn't find anything that suggested he was uh,
2: tech-savvy or tech-focused. Did you now- search GitHub? Because I, I think he's got, he's got a massive repo. He's his like his, his Git repo there.
3: makes all of the the engineers weep. I'm sure. <laughs> uh, there's, I, I think it's uh, BMY. Obviously, as a custodian, are in a position where custodian banks are seen as being threatened by distributed ledger tech, by tech change. Um, they're glorified number keepers. They see themselves as adding a lot of value. They would argue they do add a lot of value. But there's definitely uh, a focus for them to be able to reduce cost. There's margin pressure, and they're seen as middlemen in, in that market. Market. so being tech focused is a great headline but actually uh, the proof is in the pudding um i know the cto and uh and, and well, other folks what were his roles
1: te- at apple and google then what, what did he do there does it say Work, he has worked, no, so, so basically with, it says okay. he worked with Apple on and Google to turn, to turn oh, okay. Visa
0: into a tech-savvy competitor. Oh, so, uh, yeah,
2: okay. that's some spin there. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know what Visa
3: did to become massively tech-savvy. Yes. Like Visa are accepted pretty much everywhere on the Internet now, and they've definitely um, pulled their socks up since the early days on the Internet. But I, I wouldn't describe them as the leading light in finance and tech. So
1: basically he used the word fintech in a keynote speech at some point. (laughs)
3: This is the thing. So I wonder, this is... For me, what sticks in my craw a little bit about this one is it's people talking about how tech-sever they are rather than showing the end result. Now, if you go look at um, the stuff that BNY Mellon have actually done in terms of proof of concepts, there's some really interesting stuff. Uh, Our good friend Alex Batlin works over there. They've done lots of proof of concepts in the DLT space. I know there's a lot of really smart folks over there trying to do amazing things. So with all respect to them, it's just the nature of this headline that I thought, this is this is doing that thing again where you talk about how tech you are rather than walking the Walks so Journalists,
4: was, huh? Quarry. I know, right? <laughs> or the wars Although, although, in 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 in, in that journalist' defense, he didn't write the headline. No, so. they
1: probably don't. <laughs> yeah, but then it says B, B.I.Y. Mellon was founded by Alexander Hamilton. Bank of New York was founded by Alexander Hamilton. Mellon was then they merged. Mellon's yes. a Pennsylvania bank, and they married, and so actually most of B. I. Y. Mellon is Mellon, like the old B. I. Y. People are. It, and you know how like sometimes two banks come together and mm-hmm. one wins and one loses. Uh-huh. History. Mel (laughs) in (laughs) one. You did not think
0: you'd be getting a history lesson today, (laughs) ladies and gentlemen.
4: It is. I've been uh, been reading a book recently about the dot-com boom, and um, it's got this weird sort of nature to it where it was written in 2002, and so it's making fun of people, but now also itself looks kind of silly Mm -hmm. because it's like, Amazon, they thought everyone would be buying stuff online. And now in 2017, you're like, yeah, obviously. um, But it is kind of interesting how... You know, 17 years ago, you know, this whole same thing about like everyone's got to be tech. Everyone's like a tech person um, was happening, kind of went away for over a decade. And now you have like all the banks saying we are tech companies. And I wonder if you know, this time tech is eating the world, you know, like this time, like actually there isn't going to be a bus and everyone's going to go, we were mad to think about tech. I don't know.
0: I think it's like somebody sort of saying, I'm not afraid of the dark. I'm not afraid of the dark. You know, like it's like it's like that mentality. It's like, if I say it long enough and like, you know, strong enough, I might start believing that that's the thing.
2: But we were talking about this earlier and actually it's quite difficult for a large financial services organization to find tech people who understand modern tech. Because actually some of the worst people are people who've been in tech for 20, 30 years in banks and say, Te- I got this, fellas. I get tech. I totally understand. And they totally don't. Yeah. You know, I was doing, doing tech thing. when you were just a boy and I know, I know what an API you is. Can't, and you I've can't heard work it all. with what?
1: me unless you know what a tip storm is, okay? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, many a, many a conversation we've had with people who are like, yeah, we run the bank on APIs.
3: Like we've had… Uh, yeah. so many banks. It's quite, uh, and it's like no, that's MQ messaging. It's quite different, <laughs>
2: and soap doesn't count. It's, but then, the, who do you bring in? You know, uh, in the end, you bring you in Shingy. To, uh,
4: sorry, sorry. Shingy. Shingy. Shingy, Shingy. Yeah, what's Shingy? Shingy, Shingy, S H I N G Y. Right, guys. Do oh you
3: my. <gasps> Continue. Okay, sorry,
4: li- listeners of this podcast. Um, if you do not know who Shingy is. Uh, please Google. He's the most incredible man. Um, he's like A- he was like AOL's like innovation consultant PR guy. He's an incredible human being. He's an Australian thought leader and self-proclaimed leader, self-proclaimed digital prophet. That's the one. Uh, I cannot believe. <laughs> You guys do not know who she is. Oh means. my God, his hair is amazing, David. <laughs> you know what? I thought you guys had credibility. David Shing
3: <laughs> joined ClickThings as VP of Product Strategy in 1999 and became the VP of Creative Strategy at Decentrics in uh, Wow 2001. I feel okay. that we've just
2: derailed this entire podcast with everyone.
3: But <laughs> well, in- actually,
1: actually, if you want to stick on the BNY Mellon story, I want to We should have we should have a little little round about how long you think he's going to last.
3: <laughs> so I. I think about that for a good old while because like 18 months it, i'm
1: putting my cards on the table really 18 months
3: Why? Why? So is that Why? because Why? the custody business is is generally looking pretty shaky itself or is that because um you feel something like what's the what's the reasoning
1: because whenever a bank hires a tech savvy person that's how long they last
3: but i wonder <laughs> but that, that maybe that's his saving grace so maybe so
1: if he lasts longer i was
3: gonna say mm-hmm. but he's not I mean it, all I don't know the guy, but I assume busy. he's I'm actually not tech savvy. I'm he looks like suspicious. he's mostly had accounting role, so he'll probably do all right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we apologize to accountants everywhere.
4: I give him a thousand years. <laughs> Uh, well, well, let's see who's closest to the truth, <laughs> shall we? Especially if he invests in Alpha Coin or whatever oh, the, yeah, uh, yeah. if he invests in Alphaville's uh, initial coin offering, this is not marketing for security. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Um, so next up, we have a story, uh, another one in Finextra. Those guys have been busy this week. Uh, the FCA. Indeed. The FCA issues warning over misleading currency converter tools. Jason, what we you know about this?
2: You know that saying where they say sort of don't attribute malice to, to incompetence? I'm kind of verging on that, that someone somewhere was asked to put a currency converter on the banking website. And they said, yeah, we can do that. And so they built a currency converter and they used the interbank rate. Now, that's fine, but no bank actually offers retail customers interbank forex. But also, like, the amount of compliance
3: loopholes you need to jump through to get anything on a website in a bank, like... Sometimes the arguments I've seen over the wording of t's and c's has taken months, like the word "the or "a" can be like a game changer where you need twenty five people in a room so like there is something to be able to like how did this get out like how did you how you did could you just make have that?
1: a camera at a bureau de Chans at an airport and just like focus on ah,
2: there you go. No,
1: I
3: mean, well,
2: the, the story, I guess I didn't, I didn't explain the story, was that the FCA are pretty worried that, that certain uh, financial services organisations are putting currency converters on their website that just don't represent the fee that customers would pay. So you look on the website, you go, how much would $100 be? or hundred, And then you see it and you go, that's great, let me sign up. It's like, whoa, all of a sudden, now I'm not getting that rate at all. So it's a little bait and
4: switch here.
2: As I say, I, I hope that it wasn't Done on purpose, but
4: I'm going to go with malice on this one. <laughs> no one acts, you know. Oh, sorry, we just gave you a different price. But when you walked in the door, we just—I oh, just didn't realize that actually the bar is much more expensive when you get to get in there. You know? That never happens, right? <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, I don't even think that's the biggest problem in currency. Like the biggest problem in currency is you turn up to the airport and basically you. Get gouged, get gouged beyond belief, which should just be stopped.
0: Does, does anybody actually carry cash anymore, though? So, I, like, I literally, to be honest, we we went to—I'm not going to name the country because it shows how ignorant I am—but I went to one country this week, which I had no idea what the currency was when I got there. <laughs> I knew it, I knew it wasn't euro, but um, but my cards worked, so that was fine. And the taxi driver was very happily taking the cards. So, so
3: I was in. Poland yesterday, and the contactless card capability there is like everybody takes it, even for tiny
2: transactions. Their banking system is phenomenal. Shout out to Poland!
3: But it's one of those things.
2: It's a bit like uh, you know the highest uh, profit that you make in a supermarket is from fruit because no one really knows how much an Apple costs and so they just go into it. And it's one of those sort of the last things in retail banking where people just don't know what a currency rate is and what the fees are and how it all kind of works. So yeah, let's let's charge customers there because they don't really feel like they're getting a bad deal and we get to to bump up our, our rates and subsidise current accounts.
3: So
1: you're going to Malice? Uh, yeah, <laughs> you've spent. talked him round. Good work, dude. <laughs> I,
3: and I think, so a lot of banks look at their FX business as it's a declining business but it's an Extremely profitable business, and the FCA have kind of looked into this and gone from a consumer perspective. I can see how people are being misled when they think they're getting that rate, and then it lands for a different amount. And then they're like, "Hang on, I was going to send uh, hundred dollars, and what's actually landed is the equivalent of way, way less than that." And I thought it was going to come out at like ninety-five, and actually, no, it, it's seventy. What's going on here? So you can see why they're protecting consumers. They're, they're following their mandate to, to do exactly that. Um, but I do think there's something then that you've got to think about, which is as a culture. Do you want to think about where your profits come from and can it be fees? And there's a whole debate and insight show to be done on fees, I think. I I guess it's, you know, it's good that the FCA
0: is at least sort of worried about these things, really. Um, Speaking of the FCA, I had the pleasure of catching up with the FCA's Director of Policy this week, David Geel, to talk about the latest cohort of what their regulatory sandbox is and what they're looking for. So in Jurassic Park homage from David to David, let's see what I had to say. Great. So I'm here now talking with David Geel about the FCA's Regulatory Sandbox. Uh, welcome back to the show, David. It's great to have you back.
5: It's great to be here. Thank you.
0: Th- thanks very much for coming. Um, so for those, I, I guess, who missed out on your previous interview with Fintech Insider, could you give us a bit of a quick description for those who uh, live on a completely different planet, what the FCA is and what your role within the organisation is? By
5: well, it means. Um, so the FCA is the Regulator of Financial Services in the UK. Uh, we're the conduct regulator for everything, um, so whether that's very small firms uh, who are just coming into the market thinking about payments or insurance, whatever it may be, uh, we regulate them right up to the very largest banks and insurers, uh, asset managers and so on. So we broadly regulate everything from a conduct perspective. Um, and we do so to try and make sure markets work well, to make sure consumers are protected, uh, also, importantly, to look at make sure competition is functioning properly and that uh, markets operate with integrity.
0: Fantastic. And the reason for chatting today is the uh, deadline for the third cohort for the regulatory sandbox is, is rapidly approaching. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about the, the sandbox?
5: Of course. The sandbox is one of the most exciting things that we do as a regulator. And it's a little bit different because it's about helping firms who've got really good ideas to try them out. Uh, and try them out in a safe space where they can work with the regulator. So it's really about the firms coming to us and saying, I've had this idea. I'm not quite sure how it fits with your regulation uh, in terms of whether actually it meets the rules or what you expect from us or we need to be authorised to try it out and we're not authorised currently and this is a chance for us to work with them uh for us to see what they're doing um and for them to see what we expect so the sandbox broadly is about that shared space for trying out ideas
0: fantastic and and i guess off the back of the success of the uh cohort 1 and the companies that went through and uh, and seeing the uh companies that have been announced in in the second cohort then i what types of companies do you think should be sort of coming forward for for cohort 3 so, actually, we're interested
5: in innovation right across the market. Uh, I, I don't mind whether firms come to us, whether they're payments firms, whether they're insurers, whether they're mortgages, savings. Um, if it's a good idea and it's something we regulate, we want to talk to these people. Um, so, we have seen quite a number of firms who offer payment services. We've seen some looking at using things like distributed ledger technology and applying that to, say, digital ID. Uh, we've seen new takes on insurance new takes on savings, new takes on helping people who are vulnerable consumers perhaps and helping them to engage. So whether it's large firms or small firms, new firms are existing, anyone with a good idea,
0: we want to talk to you. Fantastic. And what type of support and tools do the FCA give? Because I, I know uh, having spoken to a, a lot of the companies that have sort of come through both the uh, first cohort and are uh, in the second, then um, you guys really sort of go all out with with ensuring that, um, that they get everything that they need.
5: Yes. So the first thing we do is look at what sort of help that the, the firm will need. Um, so do they need to be in the sandbox or, or can we help them in another way? Uh, but if they do, there are a number of tools that we can use. So those tools include firstly, restricted authorization. So for people who aren't currently authorized, uh, can we re- authorize them for a period of time to deal with a set number of customers, for example, just for the purposes of that test? And we can do that more quickly if we, if we know those parameters and we agree those parameters. Uh, and that's the most popular thing that we, we've used actually in the sandbox is people coming to us from perhaps currently outside the sector with something new that would fall within the financial services realm. We can also help firms by helping them to understand what our rules mean. So we can give them individual guidance. Um, so, In terms of the test that you're looking to do, how do our rules apply? What do they mean if you do this or, or that? And how can you stay the right side of the line? In some areas we can waive rules. So actually we can switch off particular requirements uh, if, we think it's, if we think it's appropriate to do so. And we could also offer non-enforcement action letters. So if things do go wrong, uh, we won't take enforcement action. The one thing I would say is throughout the whole of the sandbox, it's really important that consumers are protected. Uh, and that, that's very important to us as a regulator. So whatever we do within the sandbox, we would agree with the firm upfront, what are the consumer protection aspects and what happens if things do go wrong. So how do we put consumers back where they should have been? So it's not an unregulated free-for-all, if you like. It's about testing in a controlled environment where we as the regulator can work alongside the business.
0: So I, I, I guess the uh, the action that everybody should be taking who's got a good idea right now is that the the deadline is creeping up, isn't it? Um, when, when do businesses actually have to have their applications in for the cohort three? So Cohort 3
5: closes on the 31st of July. So uh, they've got a few days yet, but not that long. Uh, so I would encourage anyone who's interested in participating in the next cohort uh, to be filling out their application now. All the details are on our website of our criteria and what they need to do. Um, if, if they're struggling with that, just give us a call. Um, we can make sure they take the right steps.
0: Fantastic. Well, um, uh, you know, another thing for me that really feels like we um, set aside the the right resources and the right emphasis to really sort of foster innovation. So, um, David, thanks very much for joining us on Fintech Insider again. Thank you very much. Awesome. Thanks very much for that, David, and great to hear what's going on with the sandbox. Um, so now it's probably time to top up our drinks. Just to point out for everybody, Liz Lumley's actually started bringing her own wine to these podcasts because I know nothing about wine.
1: Echo Falls. Oh, my God, David.
0: I know. I'm sorry. I'm a Lamborghini girl at heart. What can I say? So while Liz fills up her glass and we fill up our drinks, listen to our sponsors.
1: The Financial Times guides you through complex issues. In divisive times, don't settle for black and white. When you need the full perspective, turn to FT.com. Become a subscriber today. Search for FT Subscription.
2: Critical Mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach Critical Mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs, opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just won Reader's Choice – Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos us now. We make the money go round.
5: Let's be honest, most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit Strands.com today.
0: Welcome back for part two. After what was quite an elongated break, pretty much facilitated by a WeWork gin tasting thing, which is quite we good. Work. So, uh, yeah, thank you very much the wonderful people at WeWork. Um, so, moving on, the next story up we have from Business Insider. This is rate setter has 80 million of loans go bad. Oh dear.
4: Oh dear. Actually, I'm very offended because I also wrote about this and my, my, my version of the article was not linked, but I will let that slide. Um, <laughs> we will link it in the show notes. <laughs> <it. laughs> um, but, uh, effectively rate setter used to do wholesale lending, which is lending to other lending companies. Um, it's generally considered a more risky thing because the company you're lending to is taking on further risk, which you have less of a view into. And, uh, recently the FCA were like, stop doing that. And so they had to stop doing that. And the effect of this was one of the companies they were lending to suddenly kind of went bust um, because it was relying on the money that Ratesetter was lending. And that uh, put not quite the whole 80 million of loans, but sort of about half of that um, at risk. So Ratesetter did a couple of things, had to intervene um it bought uh, two subsidiaries of one lending company in order to run off the loan book those loans that's about sort of, 38 million or something those loans have not um gone bad uh, I mean they're certainly not doing as well as they could have done but retailer believes that it's able to it'll, it'll be able to run them off and get the money back um it also made an intervention into another lender called George Banco where it sort of bought a minority stake and put their co-founder on the board um
1: it's backing away from it though uh, to well, the well cu- cu-
4: curiously, um, they made the investment and they said, what we're going to do is we're going to start lending directly to George Banco customers. And then three weeks later, they said, uh we thought we were going to do that and we're not going to do that um which i i wonder i don't know if the fca were like ah eh, don't do that or there was some other reason not to do that but um the george Banco loans they also haven't gone bad um george Banco is still like a functioning company and regulators also believe that it will be able to pay back the money so that's most of the 80 million so they're not quite bad the interesting bit is about 12 million now run off to 8.5 which was a company rated were lent to was a vehicle finance company. It owned a fifty percent stake in a advertising company that had like digital advertising screens. In, is it
1: the one that got tw- a twelve million that's a 12, pound loan? That's a twelve million, which, which yeah. is according to Business Insider. Sorry, it's not FT. Poorly managed.
4: Right. So the company was poorly managed. Um, it like had uh, it had digital advertising screens in places like golf clubs and I'm Tony and Guy managed. hair I'll salons. i I'll take
1: five. Um,
4: and uh, and actually that money it was like so that they that's a bad debt. Their provision fund currently has about twelve million of cash in it, or a little, a little bit less, a little bit more, um, and about eight million of future income. So effectively, they have said, no, 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 our investors will not feel the pain for this because if they were, it would pretty much, you know. Wipe out like half of our provision fund and certainly all the current cash in it, which is a big deal for rate setter because its entire like business model is predicated on our investors don't uh, feel losses because we have a provision fund that protects it from them. So clearly, yeah, some like their wholesale lending business has not turned out as well as they had expected to. And they've dodged a bullet here, which is their provision fund, you know, being in crisis, which would be, you know, a big reputational problem for them. So. I don't know. Hopefully they are able to get everything back, uh, put the ship back yeah, upright. So, there,
1: so there, there's a quote, Setter said in an email to its customers, the provision fund does not provide a guarantee of safety of your investment.
4: Well, that's, yeah, that, I mean, that's what they say. But the effect, right, the point of it is to make people feel a little bit more like their investment is um, safe. The other interesting thing here is last December, the FCA put out this big report where they said, um, effectively, some people are not telling their investors when things go bad. Some, <laughs> some
3: some people some
4: people are um disguising losses by stepping in, and this I mean this sort of stuff did not happen last month, right? This these are loans like you know early 2016 and so on. So Richard has sent an email to investors, being totally transparent, but they weren't transparent when the thing happened, and I think the, this is them. You know hearing what the FCA is saying, which is you need to tell people when losses happen so that they have the full understanding of the risks that are, you know that exist on your platform but also like vehicle
2: financing, like the fact that you've been lending to vehicle financing that the FCA is concerned about the transparency and potential conflicts of interest and irresponsible lending in the motor finance industry. is like, talk about lending to someone that that arguably could have an investigation into them anyway, and how does that, that turn
4: out? Yeah, I mean, in, in fairness, I think rates that have always been it's, you know, it's not been a secret that Ratesetter has been doing sort of some kind of vehicle, fi- vehicle finance. I mean, I think Zopa also does a bunch of vehicle finance, and they're actually expanding that part. Um, and you can ask questions about whether that's a good idea, given, you know, all the concerns generally about car financing. Um, but to be fair, I don't think that bit was a secret. And, and their investors, if they had you Googled a bit, they would have known that, I guess. Google, the source of all knowledge, <laughs> and it's
3: a bit of a different narrative to the "Hey, fintech is rosy, uh, everything's good, rah rah, let's do fintech too." Actually, no, everybody's got everybody's poo stinks. Like there's, there's, <laughs> there's yeah, there's, there's, there's kind of there's. You got to do stuff right, and you got Just to say because right stuff.
1: your alternative does not mean you're better or it, you're a good guy.
3: You're exactly, and, and I think the large banks who have for quite some time struggled with making uh, lending compliant and and trying to do all this stuff will finally take some uh, kind of relief that like, hey, look, it's not just us that gets kicked. I think there's something to be said for even if you're small or smaller and doing something, you will get found out. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. You can't just wave past compliance. You, You have to put a lot of effort into compliance even if you're small because otherwise people can get burnt and things can go wrong. Speaking of lots of effort, moving on to the next story. So this is uh, something that
0: Barclays put lots of effort into. We have Barclays now giving away B Pay
2: bands for free, which they were previously charging for. Jason, what's happening here? Well, this is uh, an article from our friend Lindsay Barber at City AM around uh, Barclays B Pay, which is this twenty pounds contactless pay wristband or sticker or key fob. Uh, I. I got one of these a long time ago when they were into the alpha phase, and essentially, almost all of it is a is a holder in some way for a very, very small debit card. You know, it's absolutely tiny. It reminds you of the SIM cards. It's like a chip with a little antenna like that you then. It's a prepaid
1: card, or is it?
2: Uh, it it's a stored value thing. Okay. So you, I think you load money onto it and then you can use these stickers or key fobs or Topshop do, do a, a, a holder for one of these micro cards. So they, they were trying to kind of push this new, let, don't carry cards around, wear the card or it's kind of trendy or it's on your keys or, which is interesting because a lot of banks, at least in the US, uh, were giving away stickers or giving away these kinds of things in order to make it easier to pay. Uh, but, Ultimately, Barclays, have, uh, in February, they said they'd had 1.1 million transactions taking place using BPAY with 6.6 million spent since launch. And they launched it in 2015. So in, you know, in, in April alone, there were £460 million pounds worth of consul- contactless transactions. So you argue it's not really hit mainstream. It's not a big thing here. And so it seems that they're still trying to push it and they're removing that barrier because... Would you pay twenty pounds for well, for something like to carry if you around? You go to
1: like a music festival. Or you go to Disneyland. Sure. You know, you get a you get a, a wristband. Yeah. Where you pay for stuff. Um, yeah. So I don't know why you would pay twenty pounds for something so that guess- you get away for free when you got to think about. You
3: you can almost imagine the business case at some point, right? where it's like, we're going to get into a new business line back in 2013, wearables are going to be a thing. The innovation team says, here's a new revenue line, wearables are going to be a thing, we've got contactless already, we do cards, this could be a new revenue line and we'll extend our brand and we'll do festival stuff and and you can sort of see the, the logic behind it. But I think there's a bit of smell what sells that startups have to do where they test and iterate and test and iterate and do it small and you talked about being involved in the alpha what's interesting is that alpha probably didn't give the data feedback it needs to stop doing something that isn't catching fire because this thing has been pushed and pushed and pushed and continues to be pushed probably because an awful lot of money's been spent on pushing it without necessarily getting the feedback and the results that it necessarily needs and this we talked at the beginning about that you know, the, the Monzo approach or, or the other startup approach of get users do something very small if it works then build other features this is almost the opposite of that there are no users but let's keep pushing it anyway it feels a bit like a, a zombie that just we
1: try and make it work
3: yeah, yeah that just kind of refuses to die and go away whereas there was a startup called Token that hit TechCrunch on the 27th of June uh, and they've made one ring to rule all of your passwords payments and physical access they've raised 1.5 million from uh, Future Perfect Ventures RR ventures and Highline Ventures who've invested in some pretty good stuff. They have a GSM chip um, and, all, and an NFC chip in there. You can manage Bitcoin wallets and it's basically designed as high-end jewelry and they're, they're trying to partner with um, Apple and the Apple Store to try and make this like a really high-end thing that people want to have. It's going to be this really cool way. So you can see that the approach was different. It's a startup. It's got venture backing and they've got a bunch of fashion brands behind it and high-end like uh, technology companies to try and push it. Very different approach. It's not, we think we're a cool brand as a bank and we're going to push this at you and charge it for you. It's, we're going to build a thing and it has to survive based on you know, venture capitalists behind I th- I it. I think
1: any any like piece of hardware has to be given for free. Mm-hmm. I mean, my, my son... You know, I uh, once a month. He's twelve. He says you need to top up my lanyard, and he uses it to buy stuff at school. That's how his his wallet is. Yes, you, have, you will all find that someday they they buy snacks. Um, but yeah, so this is it. So you get it at schools, you get it at festivals, you get it at amusement parks. You get it, but the, it's not something. It's something that you you pick up for free and you load with twenty quid. And
0: yeah, mm, I I agree with that. It's it's like the having the privilege of buying something shouldn't be like a paid for experience yes, you know yes. like if i had to pay for my credit card that would be a weird thing that i had to pay for my credit card to then pay for the stuff with that service you know so but but is this is this barclays saying this is not great it's not working out therefore we should give it away for free to bring up the the users or is this them saying actually this is working and we
3: want to kind of get more people using that, that's this kind stuff. of what worries me like which is it i don't <laughs> know like again i totally get the ambition behind this i totally get the intent really really positive and, and i don't want to disparage somebody for trying to do something innovative but it is that how could you do like with the amount that was spent on this could you have not done a hundred smaller things one of those might have caught fire and then back that rather than rather than really don't,
4: don't do ideas that catch fire just to <laughs> state that like, if something Sam's, is, not an
3: arsonist right?
4: if something's working at like 20 pounds you almost certainly don't like give it away for free right so it's probably not the uh, it's going great um,
3: there's a company but, um, sorry Kadim, there' was a company all. Digisec, who uh, basically do this with any uh, device that has uh, an NFC chip in it and now lots of um, kind of uh, ring manufacturers and companies do any type of device that have these chips in them and they've basically built some software that can take any of those and can provision it with a card now that's a really small company that interestingly came through the barclays accelerator uh, and i think is is kind of more where this feels like it's heading like if i've bought a thing and that thing happens to be available to have apple pay in it or samsung pay or Mastercard, whatever it is that feels better than i go
4: to my bank to buy my jewelry yeah. <laughs> I, gotta be honest, I find a lot i mean i find Almost all of this sort of like new ways of payment stuff, extremely irritating. Oh, it's so boring. Um, I hate it. I
1: hate the new ways of payments. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I'm sorry. I I need to tell What What did you do? (laughs) (laughs) It is so boring. It is so incredibly boring. I was in the Lamb and Flag pub in Covent Garden last week, which is in the middle of tourist land. And there were these 18 year old American boys. And I, I'm like, Oh my God, my countrymen, I hate you. Why are you embarrassing me? And they're all excited because they can buy beer. And they're all like buying <laughs> themselves pints of Foster's. And I went and, and bought myself, t- my friend, two pints. And I paid contactless. And they went, oh, dude, how'd you do that? And I'm like, oh, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> really? Just It's not magic. It's just paying for beer.
4: I, so I find Rob. it annoying for a different reason. <laughs> I, I, um, I find it annoying. So whenever I get on the tube, I get my card out uh, and I just tap it and it works. And then I get on and then there's some idiot using their iPhone Apple pay. and it takes them like ten minutes for the thing to recognize as a phone there. And everyone's waiting in the queue behind them. And I saw someone else using it, like their Apple their Apple Watch and they were like like fumbling around trying to get their arm in the right configuration and stand. I'm just like, just use your goddamn card. It's not broken. I actually and-
1: I use my Oyster card because it's it's there's a it's 100th of a second it's quicker than the than the contactless right. and yeah. it, yes even that
0: olympic payments that's what we want so. <laughs> but but i think uh, we're, we're in slight sort of um risk of just being sort of our you know Pasty-faced uh, sort of uh, UK living London lifestyle here to a certain <laughs> degree. Like, if I was kind of the sort of tanned Adonis that sort of uh, was hanging out on a beach and actually didn't want to carry my cards yeah, around with you're, me you're and at, paper you're stuff. And, day,
1: you're at a festival, you're at an amusement park. All of those things make sense. Yeah. yeah.
0: But, but the thing is, like, we do that, like, maybe like twice a year, whereas actually, like, most of the rest of Europe live like that every day. So, like,
1: festivals uh,
2: every day? Well, no, just like, you know, what five o'clock, that? it's beach time <laughs> but it's interesting it's an interesting point you bring because then from that you could say like maybe this is a beach thing a holiday thing because then actually store value card good forex rates like some kind of thing that means you don't have to have a Honestly, wallet and you're suddenly you're we're. Is, what you're
1: saying is barclays should have said you know what we're just going to launch this with people in malaga yeah you know and see if it works and yeah. then you know yeah so yeah anyway You'll, you'll send them your consulting bill, <laughs> uh,
0: Barclays. We will send you the bill. <laughs> Moving on. So this is a story in the FT Academy. You'll be glad to hear on this one. Uh, this is but not my story again. I'm very very uh, upset. No uh, no offense intended. So this is tech startups
3: raise 1.3 billion from ICOs, initial coin offerings. Thank you. Uh, yeah. So which sounds like IPO. Initial public offering, but it's very, very, very different. That,
0: that so, must have been intentional, though, right? To give it right. the sound of something professional, but so, not so Here is
3: the, the thing: if you speak to anybody doing one of these things, they do not want you to call it that. It is a token sale, and selling tokens, as Jason said earlier while we were talking offline, might as well be selling magic beans. For, for <laughs> how these things are worded. Um, so, so
1: who came up with the term ICO? Then uh,
3: I think it was a term that started really around 2016. It was used originally by the DAO, I believe, or somewhere around there. I don't have the exact details. It it was a term that popped up. And the idea was instead of, uh, it it really was a token pre-sale, right? When Ether came along, uh, they said, these Ethereum things are going to be worth something one day. The Ethereum network hasn't launched yet, but buy them now, and they may be worth something in future. So the idea is you offer it up front for something that may be of value in future. So on Blockchain Insider, I I gave the example of being like, I'm going to build a theme park in the near future when i build that theme park there's going to be a load of rides right now if you buy these tokens you can go on one of those rides for 10 percent of the cost of what those rides are gonna cost in three years time when the theme park gets built but we might not build the theme park so you the risk is priced in so you're buying them at 10 percent, assuming the value is going to increase for something that has utility in future that's the theory But then it gets weird. Um, Then it gets weird. (laughs) So So
0: I like theme parks.
3: Uh, But the rest I don't understand. So uh, Typically you would raise venture capital and you'd try and build a company and you'd you'd have to prove where your revenue was going to come from. Here, what people tend to do is they'll have a white paper and they say, this is the future product we're going to offer and it's not going to come out for 6-12 months. And then they do stuff like uh, domicile a foundation in Switzerland and make it so that nobody from the US can invest and all these kind of things to generally avoid the scary regulators in the world, which raises an eyebrow. But I think there's something about these initial coin offerings that are... So there's a great uh, quote by F. Scott Fitzgerald that says, the ability of a first-rate intelligence is to hold two opposing ideas in mind and still function. What I love about this is, on the one hand, this is madness. It is a bubble. It is stupidity. It is the dot-com boom all over again. 1.3 billion in the space of a couple of months for about 7 to 20 different companies is legitimately insanity. Like there's, There's no way about it. And it's also a genuine revolution in how companies are funded, and could be a new business model that's truly, truly it's exciting. It's like
1: the whole blockchain world, right there.
3: <laughs> and and that barbell is is a sign of just how crazy it is. But I look at things like um, Steamet.com or all of these crazy things that we talk about on Blockchain Insider as being just really interesting business models. And there are some very interesting ideas here. But there's also the fact that I can have a white paper and I have no proof that I'm ever going to have any revenue and people will invest in it and there are people going to get burned well and the the scary thing on this is that
0: it's not just the people who are raising 1.3 billion who are doing this so you know literally i you've passed me your phone twice during the recording of this and you've had two approaches now for offers of getting involved in icos and i've sent you about what three or four emails this week so you know like the the sort of the fury around getting involved in this stuff is happening and none more than what's oh, happening no, over I, in the FT category. Yeah.
4: I, um, I think actually when we were on blockchain slider, I was like, you know, maybe this is the thing. Maybe, I don't know. Um, I actually looked at what it was. Um, and I'm going to not hedge my bet. I think this is, there is no, you know, barbell thing going on here. It is just insanity. Um, <laughs> like do you remember d- you talked about that book where people were looking back on Amazon? yeah yeah you just did that well maybe maybe I will be the guy who, in two thousand and two said Amazon was going to be nothing, but from what iCOs may exist in the future in some some form right if they continue to exist in the current form, it is nothing but madness right Agreed. effectively, people are raising money and they 're doing it with an iCO because they have no obligations, and people who seem to not care about the fact that they 're buying nothing. Are giving them money, right? So that is what's going on now. And like literally the EOS uh, token sale, it says in the FAQs, these have no use, no function, no purpose, no rights, they're nothing. Um, and people are like, oh, but if you read the, if you, but you know, you, you gotta they listen start to the giving guy. You some he,
1: lecture about what is money. Means. Yeah, like <laughs> the,
4: he, the presentation, like, no, no, no. The website says these things have no value, mm, right? But this is- and it's like, so why have you do- why and they raised two hundred million dollars? So it's, it's also a
1: poisoning thing. So I I was MC of Block Show Europe in um, Munich earlier Ooh, this year. I am available fancy. for all you all your MC needs. And we did like a an audience with a baggy pants. I'm thinking there MC, were lots of Bitcoin Bros oh. there. There were, there were Bitcoin lots of Bros um, yeah. <laughs> trademarked. Um, so we did like a poll on on ICOs and, and they said you know what what do you think of them? And half the audience said they're they're complete cop's waddle. They're you know ridiculous. And then. Exactly 50% said, yeah, I'd invest. So it's like... <laughs> it, it's a barber.
2: It, it's a barber. But in, yeah. in the end, this is, you know, it's geek Kickstarter. It's people who've been mining and are in the community. They've got the religion. It's like, the, we're going to, like, forget all those capital markets. Forget the man. Like, we're off of that.
4: Like, we're going to create our own world, man. But if, but if it was just geek Kickstarter, if they were like, hey, we're doing a Kickstarter. We're going to, you know... But it's not that, it right? It's dressed, up, money it's, it's dressed up in the language of you're about to make a million bucks, right? And that, <laughs> what, to, me, that yeah. To, yeah. Point, to me is not 1. just 1. like... three
1: billion. billion? This, where this come from? It's just
4: a, it's funny just Ether a money and funny it. Bitcoin money. I know,
1: you can launder it. Simon told us how you can launder it. <laughs> 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 I wrote it all down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like on, on, the,
4: on, sorry, on the EOS thing, right? Again, in the FAQ, it says, well, what are you going to use the money for? It says, the money is the revenue of block.one, which is basically in the Cayman Islands right so from off the bat this is not any investment this is just this is just the sales of our Cayman Islands business um and then it says we may use some we're going to like develop the software I'm sure the software is great um also we might just start you know use it to fund our consulting business right it's like they're just saying to you you're going to give us the money and basically we're going to do a bunch of stuff which we've technically told you about but uh, so the so the, the drop Simon the drop in Ether the
2: drop in Bitcoin like is this people lying in the Cayman Islands you know who have just checked out with suitcases full of cash no no I'm not saying that have, I'm not saying no, that I'm, no no, yeah, no I'm, but I'm kind of in. joking I'm semi-facetiously saying like do the fact that 1.3 billion has now been raised and taken there, out of Ethereum is it taken out will it then drop the price well so if I've just
3: raised um 230 million 150 million in a cryptocurrency which has increased in value by 3,000% since the beginning of year, the year and has just started to dip in price, would I start hedging that? I, <laughs> I'd be cashing that
0: out like crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be storing money into my beds just in yes, case.
1: You literally, know? as soon as I hit, like, you know. Uh, like, yeah. Gonna, like, uh, but
3: <laughs> so the interesting thing in here is the token sales are actually cancerous to the underlying infrastructure that funded them. Because when you raise value, when you give a load of Ether to this EOS or to Tezos, these, these people are incentivized to sell that for different things or at least hedge it with, with a contract for difference. So by default, the value of that Ether decreases. So you, and EOS especially, has been launched with the mandate of replacing Ethereum. So they've been funded by Ethereum to replace Ethereum. Like there's, The drama in this space is incredible. And we haven't even gotten onto the story of where some black hat hackers have stole 30 million from Take people. Us. Uh, Take us there. Uh, so there's another story. Um, there's the Parity Multisig Wallet is one of the main Ethereum wallets. So if I'm going to hold Ethereum, I can hold it on Kraken or Coinbase. and Or I can have a wallet of my own on my own device. And one of the most popular ones is by an organization called Parity. This has an exploit in it. There's a hole inside this wallet that a black hat hacker uh, has exploited and stole $30 million from people who hold those wallets. Uh, and that black hat hacker happens to have the same address as the person who was behind the DAO hack, which is a whole other story that we can get into. And if you
2: don't know what the DAO hack is, Google that because it's interesting. So, so hold on. You're talking about some like evil mastermind. Like cryptocurrency guy who's made two of the biggest hacks. The, the this seen.
3: is the great train robberies all over again. It's magic, but the the plot thickens. Not only has somebody stole thirty million for that purpose, somebody else has ridden in on their white horse and said, "Hey, I know this exploit's out here. I'm going to steal your money from you to protect you from the bad guy." So,
4: I really hope it's the same guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, so, somebody has
3: stolen. Hun- I
1: know. <laughs>
3: somebody has stolen. Somebody oh my god! Has gen- I know how he did it. <laughs> somebody has genuinely stolen. 150 million dollars from people and said don't worry i'm going to give this back to you this is movie stuff and well we've got to move on to the next story soon so we're going to have to cover this all in blockchain insider next week uh, so how
2: do people find so this is a sister podcast of fintech insider correct Where did people find that you go to
3: itunes or your favorite podcast app and you look for blockchain insider and we've been covering tokens for weeks Cabin's even been on one of the shows oh, yeah. it's been pretty magical uh, that's like
2: the best movie trailer ever
3: you just <laughs> delivered there it's got drama it's got hackers it's
4: got everything
1: but i love how they identify themselves with black or white hats and
4: it makes it so much easier. If, well, yeah. Doing it. If only well, everyone wore this I know. kind of hat. That's a bad guy. He's got a I black don't. hat on. When
3: augmented reality comes in, I'm just going to superimpose these hats onto people to know who I'm dealing with. Everybody in this room would have a white hat for sure because I oh, love you guys. Simon. Oh, you know. Uh, but we got to move on, Jason. There's a story in the Guardian here about um, ending of
2: the rip-off charges. Um, I think basically, like everyone wrote about this because. It sincerely affects customers. You know, if you've ever been to a newsagent's and you go in to buy something, you say, I'm going to use my contactless card. And they say, that'll be 50p. Or you've been online to buy airfares and suddenly there's this surcharge there. You know, all, all of those things around we're going to charge you extra for debit cards, credit cards are suddenly not going to happen from January 2018. So you
1: know. where's the fee going to move to?
2: Well, that's the interesting question, <laughs> because from a consumer perspective, you think, wow, this is great. But of course, that merchant who has a deal with an acquirer somewhere, like, are they now covering that, that charge? No, it's is still the acquirer be going the consumer. to make past uh, no, It'll, you know, it'll it, just it, be sent
1: we, to the consumer another way.
2: Which, which, interestingly, then means that someone who's paying cash is paying for, for me to use my my card, which is a point I think Dave Birch made on a on a Twitter um, uh, stream at some point. It's like, is this good for consumers or is this just spreading card costs around everyone? Yeah, so do you know that thing where you go to a street magician and they've got the three cups with the yeah. ball
3: inside <laughs> yeah, it and they're just exactly moving it. it around and you can't see where the charge is? Like, I get the feeling that this is going to happen here is like, yeah, charges and fees seem like whack-a-mole between the regulator and the banks. And I'm mixing my metaphors, but like, there's just something about you move one fee and somebody. Twice to find another place to put the fee. And there's a real cultural thing here. There was a, story, here, like, there was a story, Stop being assholes. There
1: was a story Lee Fulmer made. It's uh, told at an old EBA day. I think it was in Luxembourg. Uh, he's ex-UBS, or I think he's at UBS, ex-JP Morgan. And it was during the first iteration of the Payment Services Directive. And they was talking about Ireland. And all of a sudden, people were shown, because of the PSD, all the charges that went on. Mm. And, of course, people popped up and said, what are all these charges? And, in fact, they were always... Always being charged this because the PSD they were now shown exactly what they were being charged for. So this is a, it's a psychological play. I mean, I'm I'm upset with the Guardian, but I know they get a bit populist. It's like yeah, so consumers are not going to have this. Ch-. Yeah, you will be. Well, you will, just want to uh, know about. You it.
4: Well, like, you know where I where I live. Um, you know, you have to walk sort of five ten minutes in either of ten minutes in either direction, to get a card machine that doesn't charge, and sometimes that's out of order, and you got to go to one that does charge. I mean, I'm really happy that that will end.
1: You, have, you found an amazing. ATM machine that charges. Where are those? Some like dodgy pub in the East End. No, no, like, oh, yeah, okay. I'm, I
4: lived near that <laughs> as well. Okay. Okay. It's an <laughs> with card machines that charge. Um, um, I mean, yeah. In, in general, like the reaction may be that, for example, uh, like really funny. The day this story came out, just each share price. Fell like a a huge (laughs) amount but because you know they make a significant amount of revenue from uh, card processing fees and it's total nonsense right they're not gonna you know there isn't gonna be suddenly oh all that revenue is gone um it may be the hit will be to restaurants um, because they won't be able to charge the fees but they may just increase prices or they may you know and so
3: airlines were the worst for this right
4: yeah, it's, it's totally ridiculous, actually. But, so, but, but I think it's it's like one of those things where people will just get away with taking
0: the piss for as long as they can take the piss. And actually, when these things, these services become commoditized enough where the transparency comes along, then actually you can't get away with it anymore. So the business model needs to move on. So it's quite... um quite a terrible indictment I guess of an industry that's been taking the piss for quite a long time but while you can't
2: challenge it and you can't really explain it then you can get away with it but, but then equally I'm not convinced it's the guy in the news agent in some way he's just passing along the the fees yeah. I don't think he's come up with this amazing you know clever way of yeah. taxing people he's like look you know you certain like card acquirer charges way. me the uh, this fee and Look, I need to pass that along. And yeah, I'm going to make a bid on it. But still, when when I take a card, it, it costs me something.
3: And and you can see the original, the first airline that did this was like, God, these card fees are really killing me, especially because people are using the Amex to get their air miles.
1: And, A- A- Amex was the big, the big one that used to have the most charges. So yeah.
3: so you could see how it crept in, and then you could see Ryanair going, well, every other airline does this, let's really crank this fee because, <laughs> and so it, it just creeps into being, and so you end up in this constant struggle between regulators and people that started something that started out as I'm just going to cover my costs can very easily run away from. From you But unless you build a culture of like, should we be doing that? Is there a better way to profit? Is scale better? And and as an incumbent, it's hard to find those places for growth because we talked about B pay earlier. Because when large incumbents do try and do things for growth that are trying to be innovative, they don't always work. And you can you can more or less rely on a, a
1: fee structure to yeah. generate. But no, but your profit. I agree. I mean, it's not the the corner news agent that's doing this on purpose. Mm. That having that POS terminal co- costs them money. Mm. So you know, it's both him or her and the consumer that are getting screwed by this and when you eliminate that fee those are the people that need to be taken care of
4: but I also think that the, um, like in general whenever people are able to just add fees on prices um, in, like that's a way of adding on profit while still saying well the price is cheap and so if, you know, if the result is yeah that the cost gets put into the price well in a competitive market that's, a sort of, that's better than yes. the price plus the fee yeah. Um, that's slightly higher price, because you would expect um, the companies to still compete.
2: And that thing that warm. always catches me, catches me when going to the US around yeah, sales tax. Yeah. It's like, what? Hold <laughs> on, it said this on the thing, and you're saying that.
1: Yeah, yeah. and also the different states. Yeah,
0: <laughs> but but I guess in that in that context, though, you, you know, to your point, it's like saying. You know, just be- and and what we've seen here is like people start to take the piss with it. You know, they they are in a situation where they're passing on something and then get carried away. So it's like you going, "Well, there's tax here in this state and it's at this level, so shoplifting's fine." You know, like it doesn't it doesn't quite sort of work out in terms of like the the logic behind the argument. It's okay
1: so- in uh, New Hampshire, by the way.
0: Is that yeah. what what shoplifting or the taxes? Well,
1: well it was, when I was
0: fourteen. Oh, okay. <laughs> I believe there might be a whole other story behind that one. So moving on quite uh, quickly before Liz gets into trouble. This is the last story, and we always like to leave with quite an interesting one. Usually a funny one, but this one, I guess, has some pretty serious undertones into it. So this is a story that's in the Chicago Tribune. This is a man who... Robs a bank, which um, while is not something necessarily uh, headline in itself. He did it while leaving four children
3: waiting outside in his SUV. He
1: awesome. would da- bring bring children to work, Dave. See what daddy does.
3: I would have liked it better if it was like four chickens or four dogs or something, just like four cats, something really obscure. Like just go, if you're going to rob a bank and you're going to do Maybe it, he
1: couldn't get a babysitter. Yeah, you know, childcare is a big thing in the US.
3: It is, and it's, it's an expensive headline. one as well. I, I guess
1: in terms <laughs> I, I think of the, the interesting
2: thing is that while he wanted and. I quote four thousand pounds in an envelope while well, i'll shoot everyone else in here um he only got 501 dollars from essentially a cash dispensing system and that's one of the one of the things with uh with i guess moving cashless and also the cost of holding cash and the limited amounts that actually banks now hold you know you try going to a, one of your retail banks and saying i'd like to take out five thousand pounds and we'll see how far that gets you you know Actually, bank robbing in the in the old sense is just getting increasingly difficult, I guess.
0: Are we, are we sort of advocating
3: that this guy should have done some sort of ICO to uh, <laughs> avoid shooting all of the people in said establishment? He or? should have just taken an internship and stolen the passwords and done the internal fraud. Like, that seems far easier these days.
1: I've got, I've got a funny story about my son. I like bringing up my son in every podcast. Uh, so he was about eight, and we were in our tiny hamlet of Crayford in Kent, and our local Barclays branch closed down. It's now the Church of God Pentecostal Church. It's nothing. Um, but as we walked it went by. went from a
2: Barclays branch to,
1: to a church. church. Oh, wow.
2: Tax incentives, right?
1: Yeah, maybe. See, that's um, just
2: something that banks have not explored as a new use for their branches. <laughs> I don't know.
1: Scientology is not far away from being a bank. <laughs> no. But as we walked past, the, as they're taking the Barclays sign down off our branch, he turned to me and said, "Mummy, I guess the bank robbers will have to go online.
3: and they kind of had if you if you look at card not present fraud that's where it all is these days and to be honest that is probably the
0: truest tragedy in this whole scenario (laughs) so that brings us to the end of this show uh, and that wraps up another fine new show if i do say so myself so thank you very much to our guests liz thank you very much liz
1: thank you very much sorry i'm a bit squiffy
0: (laughs) and cadim thank you very much cadim for coming along cheers and of course, to David at the FCA, thank you very much for your insights. Before we wrap up, uh, you can find more from our guests on Twitter. But Liz, where can they find you?
1: Girl-disrupted.com. We're very
4: good. And Kadam, where can they find you? Um, yeah, at KadamSugar on Twitter and ftalphaville.ft.com. And please do
0: contribute to uh, Kadim's uh, lovely little scheme that he's running.
4: Oh, we're going. Yeah, AlphaVille is going to do an ICO, and you guys—you know—it's a real great thing. It's going to make tons and tons of money for you. <laughs> Let us know the address. We'll happily publish that.
3: Kadim has bottled enthusiasm, don't you think? <laughs> <laughs> if you
0: like what you've heard this week, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and please leave us a review on iTunes. We love reading those reviews. That's it for this week thanks for listening